0: Hello, and welcome to the National Security Law Podcast. This is episode eight March Madness.
1: And Bobby, there's also the NCAA basketball tournament.
0: Oh, yeah, is that going on right now? <laughs> what a funny coincidence. It's March 17th, a Friday, and we are broadcasting from Austin, Texas on the sidelines. South by Southwest.
1: And the NCAA Women's Basketball Tournament, where the University of Texas Longhorns are currently putting a whooping on Central Arkansas. Uh,
0: that's what I like to hear. Way to go, Longhorns.
1: Well, you know, these days, women's basketball is about all we have.
0: Uh, we also have volleyball, which is pretty awesome. Can't wait for them to come back. True. Well, we'll see about the rest. This podcast is brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney, and I'm a professor here at Texas Law.
1: I'm Steve Vladek, and I'm Bobby's, I guess, left-hand man?
0: But then, man, or I like to think that I am, I am,
1: uh, The Robin to your Lego Batman. Oh, gosh. I don't even know where to go with that other than, you know, (laughs) please stop. Bobby, I think the podcast was brought to you by, we already said that. Yeah, we already
0: said that. You know, without music, this whole thing just seems amateurish. But we bring it up with our professional repartee. Our
1: professional repartee and our planning. I mean, I think the extent to which we really thought carefully through all of the topics. It just shows.
0: You know, um, speaking of planning, we do have an agenda. We're going to talk, of course, about the latest developments with the travel ban and executive order 2.0. We will have a lot to say this week about developments when it comes to counterterrorism and the use of lethal force. We have both a story about the uh, the apparent return of the CIA drone program and then also a, a less widely commented but I think it, perhaps more important story about uh, some new areas geographically identified by the administration as, zone, as zones of active hostilities. We're going to get into all that before turning to uh, – Um, A flip side, uh, when you're not shooting uh, at someone in the name of counterterrorism, sometimes you're detaining. And we're going to talk about something we're going to call proxy detention. And uh, detention where some other country is doing the detaining, not the United States, but we have... Allegedly. Yeah, we have some alleged degree of role. And then what else do we have? We also have
1: an interesting new guilty verdict um, in a high-profile terrorism prosecution case, right, which I think comes in between those two topics you're
0: right let me add that
1: to our little outline to make this uh, very <laughs> official uh but this is the haroon case and one of the things that's interesting about this this is a civilian terrorism prosecution and now bobby conviction mm-hmm. um, of an al-qaeda member who was arrested apparently by the italians in 2011 and extradited and who desperately wanted to be tried by a military commission and uh and we have a conviction
0: in this <laughs> case so we'll, we'll have some comments on that one and it's a it's a colorful case uh, Uh, Last, we have some, uh, we can't resist it, there's some documents that in various indirect ways sort of link uh, Neil Gorsuch to uh, some mid-Bush administration Justice Department developments relating to counterterrorism, and we just can't resist diving into that.
1: Apparently there's this guy being nominated and you know, hearings next week in the Senate Judiciary Committee and all kinds of good stuff.
0: Maybe we can gin up some listeners if we put this in the
1: title. Ah, (laughs) <laughs> um, the Gorsuch effect. Um, the Gorsuch. And Bobby, obviously we'd be remiss if we didn't end the podcast without at least some discussion of our NCAA brackets. I will just preview that discussion by noting that at this moment, I'm in second place in my wife's office pool.
0: How's your wife doing in that pool?
1: Um, last. I, it wasn't
0: my idea to say a word about this.
1: Hey, you brought her up, man.
0: That's
1: all right. We we
0: know she's still not listening. See, what we should have done, Steve, we should have uh, claimed to have recorded this
1: earlier in the week, and then had have a bunch of amazing predictions. <laughs> it's like the um, there's a, a Fresh Prince episode. Well, it's Back to the Future Two, right, where they've got okay. the Sports Almanac oh, yeah, yeah, that allows them to bet retroactively on all these things happen. Um, there's also a Fresh Prince of Bel Air episode where they mess with the Butler Jeffrey, by um, putting in a pre-recorded Jeopardy episode. Where where they know all the answers.
0: Uh, Carlton must have been all over that.
1: I think it was more Will. It was more Will. Yeah. Um, Well, on that uplifting, you know, throwback memory lane uh, 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 moment, let's talk really briefly about Executive Order 2.0, Bobby. Okay. Um, Back in the news this week, obviously, it was supposed to go into effect yesterday. That's Thursday at 12.01 a.m. We now have district court rulings in the District of Hawaii and in the District of Maryland um, restraining at least parts of it on a nationwide basis. The government has, just before we sat down and record this, suggested that it's going to appeal, at least the Maryland ruling, to the Fourth Circuit. You know, we've talked about this a lot already. I don't want to belabor it. I I just want to throw one thing out there. One of the the points that's getting a lot of play out there in the media, um, both the district judge in Hawaii and in Maryland relied heavily on statements made by then-candidate Trump, by some of Mr. President Trump's advisors, by some of his surrogates, Rudy Giuliani, Bobby, there's this meme out there that we shouldn't be looking at those kinds of things, that we shouldn't be trying to get into the president's head and looking at whether, in fact, this executive order is an example of religious discrimination.
0: So... Of course, for for the listeners who aren't following it closely, that as I understand it, that the, all these rulings, the thing that they've seized on is the uh, the religious discrimination. So issue, the Hawaii
1: right? ruling is only about religious discrimination. Okay, so the Maryland establishment clause. That's right, and the Maryland ruling actually touches both on the statutory authority for all of the executive orders, some of which about blacking, um, some of that, right, um, but also the so the religious discrimination too, and and just to, to put as fine a point in this one as I can. The reason why there's all this focus now on religious discrimination is because as we talked about last week, the new executive order actually goes a long way towards solving most of at least the obvious due process problems, right? And so the, the question of whether, by focusing on these same six countries, it's still, as some have called it, Bobby, a Muslim ban right. is now really front and center.
0: So it seems, I, and I think here we're probably going to agree on this point that. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, this no, weird, we're not. The whole concept. Where, where is our producer? you know, supposed to stop these sorts oh, of things from happening. Oh,
1: hey, we need a producer.
0: Yeah, taking volunteers. Actually, we I think we're pretty good self-producing that, as, as our uh, little digression here is proving.
1: We're so good at it. Should we get back to the topic? Let's do it. Yeah.
0: Um, I think we agree that some amount of consideration of intent is rather the whole point here. right? This is not something that can or doctrinally should be analyzed purely on the black letter face of what's been written.
1: And I think, Bobby, it's not at all new to me. I mean, we both teach constitutional law. I think neither of us find it that unusual that in the context of a discrimination claim, there's going to be some dispute about how strong the purportedly neutral, non-discriminatory motive is versus the evidence of animus.
0: No, that's right. In in any kind, there are many areas of law that raise this. Uh, It's tempting to kind of analogize this to, to the search for discriminatory intent. Of course, you've got to look at evidence of what... And there's an interesting question here. Who are the relevant people, the actual sure. human beings and their intent? In this case, where it's such a, a policy identified with the president, the president's intent is unavoidably at issue. Whether we care as much about, you know, Rudy Giuliani and what yeah. he may have said, it's going kind to of vary. But certainly Trump's own statements and the statements of his chief strategist. I mean, Bannon's and statements if I may, and, really and the there.
1: continuing lack of a really strong national security case for focusing on these six countries to the exclusion of others from which there have been, you know, terrorists and terrorist-like activities. Yeah, so
0: that certainly gets to the thing that most interests me. As you know, I have an abiding interest in this question of when, if ever, is it proper for judges to defer? When when indeed must they defer to some extent to the executive branch on a national security matter? Um, You and I have both thought and debated about a lot this. I think we agree that it's not. Uh, it's not the open and shut on-off switch binary approach that sometimes you see in executive branch uh, advocacy. Um, yeah, I think it's that a in, sliding scale. Yeah, and, and and so when I've thought about this, um, certainly I think there are some. There's some circumstances, especially where there's uh, evidence in the record that shows that the relevant experts, people with actual expertise within the executive branch, have weighed in and have either brought to bear uh, comparatively superior institutional expertise or access to information. Um, and the funny thing here is, though, there, there's, I think, been no showing that those sorts of resources have been brought to bear. And a lot of people commenting from the external perspective saying, right, the reason why that hasn't been brought to bear is there's there's not a strong security case. I, as I said last week, I actually think there there's something to the argument that some of these states, the, the reason the Obama administration had singled uh, seven states originally out was these were states where they thought there was less reason to trust the intelligence cooperation and screening on the side of those states. So I think there's a case to be made that there are special security concerns as to these particular entities. Um, The real problem that that Trump has is that he and his his people like Bannon can't shut up. They can't stop making public statements that are just begging. Begging yeah. the courts to seize on those statements, including to
1: say, after the rulings. I mean, no, after I the Hawaii ruling, Trump went on stage at a rally in Nashville. Um, I think it was Nashville, right? And said, you know, and, and basically said comments that's going to make it harder for the government to defend this on appeal.
0: Now, every lawyer who's ever had a client who is is um, sort of an, a vocal client <laughs> understands this phenomenon of the client that gets in their own way. You, you do have to stop and wonder: is is it possible, perhaps? that the highest goal for, for the White House here is not, in fact, to win this litigation, right? but, but, to, actually but to be making these stir kinds up of statements. The, stir the pot. And if, and if a bunch of namby-pamby federal judges get in the way and, and and issue rulings that stop them from doing what they want to do. That actually it actually helps them attack the it, courts. It it's helps them attack the courts and the further other larger agendas. So
1: that leads me to two quick points I want to make on the way out of this, so we can actually get into the, the more national security-specific topics. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first is, I actually think the most interesting thing that happened this week wasn't um, at least on this topic, wasn't either of the district court opinions we've been talking about. It was actually the Ninth Circuit denying rehearing on bond mm. um, of the original three judge panel order on the first um, executive order. Judge Bybee, Jay Bybee, mm. yeah. former head of the Office of Legal Counsel, who yeah. in our circles is somewhat notorious, right, for his role in some of the controversial memos.
0: He, he's he's the uh, the nominal author of one of the interrogation memos, it's most widely described as a torture memo. Right. Although, I guess the, the claim, the, the way I understand the story has always been that he kind of signed off on it. Yeah, totally. And um,
1: whatever, I mean, uh, leaving leaving that discussion for another day. Um, so Judge Bybee wrote a five justice dissent from the denial of rehearing on Bonk. Not that big a number on a court with 25 judges. Yep, so. um, but it ends with, I think, a really interesting pushback against exactly what we've been talking about, the criticisms by the Trump administration of the judges. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so if I, I'm just going to quote this for a second. He says, even as I dissent from our decision not to vacate the panel's flawed opinion, I have the greatest respect for my colleagues. The personal attacks on the distinguished district judge and our colleagues were out of all bounds of civic and persuasive discourse, particularly when they came from the parties. It does no credit to the arguments of the parties to impugn the motives or the competence of the members of this court. Ad hominem attacks are not a substitute for effective advocacy. Such personal attacks treat the court as though it were merely a political forum in which bargaining, compromise, and even intimidation are acceptable principles, the courts of law must be more than that or we are not governed by law at all. He refers to the parties.
0: That Um, was, uh, I guess, he was being trying to be diplomatic there. Of course, it's only one party,
1: and not just one party, just one person, right? I mean, I think I think this is quite clearly a shot across the president's bow from a judge writing up an opinion that agrees, right? That would have actually upheld the first executive order, not the second one.
0: Yeah, I I sort of stand by this theory. I'm getting attached to the theory that they don't really. Care. I mean, they'd like to win these cases, but that's not the highest priority. It's it's to be seen to be doing something in this area in front of the audience that they're trying to send a message to. So this leads to my
1: second point, right? which is what happens now, right? So um, I mentioned the government has announced it's going to appeal to the Fourth Circuit, the Maryland decision. Fourth Circuit, everyone, just in case you don't keep track of this at home, you don't have a map of the circuit courts on your wall like maybe I do. Bobby, don't tell anybody. That, yeah. um, right, Fourth Circuit is uh, Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina. Um, Bobby, I think folks tend to think of the Fourth Circuit as pretty conservative. In fact, President Obama had a pretty big impact on the Fourth Circuit. Yep. Six of its 15 active judges were actually appointed by President Obama, another yeah. four by President Clinton.
0: Yeah, it didn't fit the old stereotype anymore. No.
1: And so it's not clear to me that they're going to find much more success in the Fourth Circuit than they had in the Ninth.
0: What, so I'm a little confused by, so the, I guess maybe the, the calendar hasn't required them to act yet, but
1: they have other nationwide bans. So
0: what good does it do them if they don't appeal in each case?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, so that, they will ultimately. I think they'll have to, right? Because even if they somehow win in the Fourth Circuit, the TRO in Hawaii yeah, right. is still a nationwide yeah. TRO. Um, this may set the statements to go to the Supreme Court eventually, but given that you know the Gorsuch confirmation hearings are starting literally on Monday, perhaps by the time that it happens there will be a full bench.
0: Oh, maybe so. No, wouldn't that be interesting? Now, I will say that I, I continue to think that for all that the statements of Trump and Bannon and others uh, few, just beg the courts to step in and say, well, I don't know, I guess you really do want it to be seen as a Muslim white right. man, so we have to analyze it that right. way. They're not making um, their case easier. No, they're not. And, and at the same time, there, there does come a moment where, let's assume they, they stop that. Is is it really the case that because of the prior statements and expressions of, of a religious-based motivation, therefore there could never actually be, you know, is it a boy who cried wolf Problems yeah. what I'm getting at, Steve? Um, I don't think that there is... The wolf in the way that's been described. There's been not. A, there's not enough evidence to convince me of that. But suppose yet. one day a wolf. But appears. one day, one day a wolf appears. Are we going Is DHS gonna find when they go to the White House and say we need you to do something about this and suspend? You know, for this particular state, and then that gets struck down too because people look back to what Giuliani and others said in the past. There, there has to be a limit to that where the government's still allowed to take certain
1: measures. Oh, I think there's definitely a limit. But but Bobby, I do think it would be a coincidence if six months from now. DHS shows up with a memo that magically says, wait, we found evidence about these, these six, six countries yeah. and only these six. So, yeah. you know, there's no question. I don't I don't think there is such a thing as, as what some have called forever taint. Forever taint. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, is a great fantasy baseball team name, I think. Um, <laughs> uh, that could,
0: okay, you use that one. I'm sorry.
1: Um, <laughs> right. Um, but I do think that in a context like this, it is neither unusual nor inappropriate for a judge to require the alleged discriminatory actor to have an especially yeah. convincing reason why his prior discriminatory statements and evidence of his prior discriminatory animus are overcome right. by subsequent developments, well,
0: and this is what you need—you'd need, for example, Secretary Kelly yeah. with a appropriately detailed uh, affidavit explaining, like, "Look, this is this is where the view came from." Right, an
1: affidavit that could totally be filed in camera, right? I mean, there's yeah. no reason why this—even if it's based on sensitive national security yeah, information—no right. so, reason why that couldn't be shared with the court, even without yeah. sharing with the public. Yeah. yeah. Okay,
0: so. Uh, Oh, actually, that's interesting. Just to digress real quick, could there be a state secrets issue in a case like this? State secrets privilege, just for listeners who don't follow this one closely, this is the idea that in civil litigation, you can move either, at a minimum, you can move to try to prevent certain information from being disclosed, rather as if it's attorney-client privilege information. On the grounds that uh, the risk of disclosure of the information runs an uh, undue risk to sure. I mean, I, I
1: mean, it, it seems to me there could be, Bobby, if we got far, if we got to discovery. I mean, right, yeah. remember, we're still in such a preliminary yeah. phase. Right. These aren't cases where the very subject matter of the litigation is going to be a state secret, as in like the right. Totten line. Right, right, right. So, you know, maybe down the road. Yeah, that, it'd be interesting to see that happening. Episode uh, 27.
0: Yeah, so that's our prediction that one day you'll see these cases <laughs> go further and then there'll be a state secrets motion. On to other topics. Speaking of state secrets. Yeah. So the latest news about covert action. Yeah, which is almost which we actually got into a little bit of a Twitter fight about. Indeed. Well, you know, that's, as far as these things go. Uh, our, our
1: producer told us to
0: told us to do uh, drums up Twitter followers to follow us on Twitter um,
1: at Bobby Chesney at Steve underscore Vladek or just at NSL podcast
0: all three. Why choose? It's scalable. Uh, there have been some developments in relation to the use of lethal force as part of counterterrorism uh, policy and as part of armed conflict. Uh, let's talk first about the uh, very interesting story revealing that uh, shortly after inauguration, when President Trump visited the CIA out at Langley, uh, we were told from the newspapers that uh, uh, he at that point decided or, or made the decision and and established that the CIA could come back to the business of being not just participating in, but fully in charge of drone strikes, at least in some circumstances. Now, a lot of context here. It's it's not entirely clear what the status quo ante was. Maybe a quick run through. Certainly, there was a time when in some theaters, particularly, I think, Pakistan, um, CIA had completely we, we are told complete control over in from the uh, the intelligence gathering, the tracking, the identification. And, and
1: Bobby, this is CIA in lieu of the Defense Department, the military.
0: Right, right. So we're talking, what we're, what's at stake here is who's in charge. Is this is this a joint special operations command activity? Is this Which is the military? Which is on the military side, special operations, uh, special mission units, or is it a CIA activity? Or or is it regular, you know, is it Air Force in, in sort of a more conventional sense?
1: And Bobby, you've called this the Title 10, Title 50 problem in some contexts, right?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's sort of an unfortunate formulation because for those who don't follow it closely, it just tends to confuse. But Title 10 is often used as shorthand for uh, military authority, and Title 50 is sometimes used as shorthand for covert action authority. Although there are
1: sort of slips of both that cut the wrong ways, but these are the sort of just to shorthand the debate Title 10, Title 50 of the U.S. Code. Right.
0: And so, and I would think it's fair to say that the public debate often takes it as a given, and in my view, without sufficient uh, skepticism, that if you're interested in transparency and rule of law compliance, then what you want is for all lethal force to be conducted by the military, and, and you always want to be against CIA doing it. Uh, that's, so that's one argument that's often made against CIA having this role. Another argument is that it's a distraction from the CIA traditional mission of collection and analysis. It creates too many institutional uh, and even, you know, sort of career incentives to, to not be focused on these other
1: important activities. Right. Destruction instead of collection. Right. Or and, elimination.
0: And then, and then the third thing is sort of a legal consequence of any activity that's carried out under color of covert action authority or Title 50. Uh, by definition, that's an activity that in which the U.S. Uh, responsibility is not meant to be publicly acknowledged or disclosed. Which is not to say that it can't be, but it's not meant to be. And as long as something remains uh, in that status, you're not going to have government officials. Uh, they're not supposed to be publicly talking <laughs> about it. The Lord knows they're in the news <laughs> all the time on an unnamed basis still talking about it.
1: And we may have a president who doesn't actually understand when he's publicly disclosing classified information.
0: Well, there's a whole there's a whole another As earlier there. this week. So the the issue is uh, under the Obama administration, there, it was widely thought that the administration strongly committed to moving CIA gradually but completely out of lethal activity. Um, and and what actually happens over time, it, it's it's not that simple. And the, the main reason it's not that simple to achieve this, uh, you can say all you want about well, the CIA really wants to hold on to this, and you can't necessarily just issue orders and. Make it so. Uh, The biggest problem, in my view, is that some states in whose territories we operate in this way, and Pakistan's the classic example, um, were willing to, or maybe still are, willing to tolerate and and allow for and consent to uh, a CIA controlled program, but nothing that would involve U.S. Uh, boots on the ground or U.S. formal military involvement. Right? So right. it's
1: Something different about having it be a, an, an intelligence operation versus the military of a foreign sovereign on your own side. Yeah, it just,
0: it's just too distasteful for them, and whether that makes sense or not is not really uh, relevant. What matters is it's clear that sometimes some states have taken that position, and so it becomes a matter of, well, you can do it, if at all with CIA doing it. And that became a reason why it wasn't so simple for the Obama administration to But make President Obama
1: this still did make this pledge, right, that he was going to really take the authority and centralize it almost, almost exclusively, right? We don't know exactly to what degree yeah. in DOD. So it looks like around 2013
0: a decision was made to to the extent possible push CIA out, CIA out of the primary role. Now, a hugely important caveat it's not obvious that meant that they were out of it in any really significant way because what you ended up with, we are told in the media, is sort of hybrid operations right. where CIA is still doing all the manhunting, all the targeting, all the identification and location Just activity. the Air Force guys who are and flying then, the operation. And, and then there's either a, a special mi- mission unit person or an Air Force guy, but a military member who's got the joystick. And and to me at least, it, it's not so clear that this is – this. but th- there is one thing that changed there the ability to publicly talk about, without having a covert action problem, being able, if you wanted to, to say, all right, after-action report style, there were this many assessed civilian uh, casualties as a matter of collateral damage. And and the, the idea was it made it easier for the White House to begin moving towards greater transparency and accountability for who was being killed and, and where. And that, in some quarters, I think, Steve, was perceived as sort of a, a you know, kowtowing to the human rights community but i think it's also it was a security measure in that it tried it put the government in a better position to counteract enemy narratives distorting Claims about uh, collateral damage and who was hit, and allowed the government to speak out and defend its own actions. That's right,
1: and I think actually that kind of transparency is really important, Bobby. Especially as we're hearing reports, for example, of a U.S. operation this week in Aleppo that might have produced a whole bunch of civilian casualties. There's some disagreement on the ground about just what happened. Um, but I want to so so I guess there are two points here, Bobby. Right. The first is it's possible that this big news story and public reporting is actually a very modest change administratively, right? that it's right. actually not going to have a big effect on the ground. But also, I want to get to the thing that you and I were fighting about on Twitter, um, which is one of the real differences, I think we agree, um, between a targeted killing program, let's just assume for the sake of argument, administered primarily by DOD versus administered on an increasing basis by CIA, is oversight. Right? That not, not the degree of oversight, I think that's where we disagree, but who is the overseer? No question.
0: There's a formal difference. Right. right. So um, when the military carries out activities, they're not overseen from a legislative perspective by the intelligence committees in Congress, uh, they're overseen, of course, by the armed services committees. Conversely, when there's covert action activity and CIA is conducting covert action, that is very much the province of the uh, uh, House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, not the Armed Services Committee. So you have these two different congressional infrastructures of oversight uh, formally uh, tracked towards one or the other. Um, and when you reintroduce, as Trump apparently does, the idea of a lead CIA role for some drone activities, um, that's that's going to shift which entities are involved and, and so this did lead Steve to some back and forth between <laughs> us and, and Marty uh, Lederman jumped in as well a little bit and, and, and Catherine Hawkins and a few others uh, talking about uh, what which way does it cut does it a does it matter and B which way is, uh, if you want more accountability and more legislative right. oversight. Are you better off before the Armed Services right. Committee to the Intelligence Committee? So I was trying to be a, a bit provocative in my original coverage on this, but I really do believe this. It, it's hardly obvious to me that the conventional wisdom is right in so far as conventional wisdom holds that you get better accountability and oversight uh, from that perspective when the military is involved. Uh, and the reason I made that argument is we're not talking here for the most part about... Um, situations where it's just, you know, it's regular Air Force operations. We're talking about special mission unit activities under Joint Special Operations Command Authority, or JSOC. And my impression has long been that both in terms of how much the media is able to figure out what's going on and report publicly, and up until recently at least, how much the Armed Services Oversight Committee mechanisms um, would attach, uh, that actually when it comes to JSOC activities, the, the media has less insight into what JSOC is doing than what CIA is doing. The CIA leaks more. And and from a legislative oversight perspective, that uh, 30, 40 years of covert action oversight has developed a fairly granular approach to oversight, including with respect to drone strikes, whereas traditionally that was not how the armed services operated vis-a-vis the military. Now, that it's changed a little bit, Under the leadership of Mac Thornberry, uh, chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, and also UT law graduate, Hookem Mac, Um, Mac several years ago began introducing legislation that became part of the National Defense Authorization Act. It's been tweaked a few times, but it, for the first time, created an explicit reporting mechanism for exactly these sorts of activities. It's very telling. Wait, are you
1: making my argument for me?
0: No, 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 no. no. Okay. I, I'm just, I'm just going to come around to <laughs> lure you into thinking I'm doing that, and then I'll cut the rug out from under you. Um, the uh, the oversight mechanism clearly didn't exist before. Yeah. So at least up to a certain point in time, my observation, I think, was clearly correct. And they they felt a need to try to capture some of the same granularity that, that the uh, intelligence committees had, that they didn't have it. And th- this is something that's been on the books for a couple of years now, uh, it's very hard to tell from the outside. You know, Paging Charlie Savage, go find out what's really going on. It's very hard to tell from the outside how well has this worked. Um, there's been a few signals, uh, at least in terms of some of the related reporting requirements associated with the armed services oversight mechanism. There's been signals in the legislative updates that they're, they're frustrated with Pentagon, the lack of compliance with some of the, uh, the larger updates required. Uh, my bottom line is, we at, at, at most, this is a wash maybe these legislative interventions have made the armed services granularly involved in JSOC activity in, to more or less the same extent as the CIA. I think there's still a reason to think it might not be as good, just for lack of having been around for as much of a period
1: of time. So I, I guess I don't disagree with any of that, but I think, you know, I want to talk about the intelligence committees, um, right? I think one of the things that... To me, Bobby, one of the most important things we learned as a result of this known disclosures wasn't anything about the substance of the government surveillance programs, but about the relative lack of meaningful pushback that NSA ever received um, from either of the intelligence committees. Um, and don't just take my word for it. I mean, I you know I have, as you know, I have this my, my one moment in the sun in television history um, was next to the Colbert Report um, <laughs> and, a, and a House Intelligence Committee hearing I testified at. Where the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Rogers, um, you know, basically said about the phone records program, why why didn't anyone complain about the phone records program? And, and I, being a bit of a, you know, persnickety New Yorker, said, well, wait, how could anyone complain? No one knew about it. And his response was, well, obviously your right to privacy is not violated if you don't know about it. <laughs> right, that, obviously, that's wrong. That's crazy. But my point is, this is not like a one-off moment. This, to me, is emblematic of the Intelligence Committee's approach to oversight of at least surveillance. Now, it's possible... I think possible... That tells
0: us a lot about Mike Rogers in that instance and in that context. i, I don't mean, mean, well, that tells we, me talk all about talk about Devin, Should we talk about Nunez? I mean, yeah, I'd rather not, but right. I don't think it tells us that therefore covered action oversight is a complete joke and serves no purpose. No, no, no,
1: no. no, no. I, I'm not, so I, I never said it was a complete joke and serves no purpose, right? What I'm saying is, I don't have any faith that the intelligence committees are especially more rigorous in their oversight of covert action than I do of how not rigorous they were of surveillance. Now, maybe the answer is, you know, it's a race to the bottom when it comes to how effective these, these committees are. But then I would add one last point, which is at the end of the day, the one reason why I have a little more faith in the military in this context than the CIA is because I have more faith that within the military... Ah, okay, so if we pivot from the, right. from the external Over, oversight mechanism to, to the, the, internal, the internal. Right, that there's more opportunity. I mean, right? the UCMJ, to me, is a much more aggressive means of ensuring that no one's colors outside the lines than what passes for internal accountability within the CIA. By the way, UCMJ being the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So,
0: uh, look, there's no question the UCMJ uh, looms large, and yet, of course, there's, there's no known instance I've ever seen of anything... Involved in the UCMJ related to anything special operations community has done. Not in, not, not a formal court in, martial, but but but
1: do you don't do, don't you imagine that there are cases where you know tags were put in people's files and careers were effectively ended over missteps that were made in the context of covert operations. But The same thing. Ha- it, oh, look right. The, I think in both cases you have serious
0: internal. As soon as we start talking about internal controls, right? We're talking about compliance with the agency or the entities. Own view of what's permissible so we're setting aside debates about whether the agency should be doing X or Y but do the personnel do what the organization says the boundaries are I don't think that the CIA uh, personnel are in any uh, better position to run rogue than military members were I think that they you know the fact that there's a UCMJ one case uh, and and it's and it's not a criminal mechanism, but a career mechanism. In the other, I think in both cases it's basically a career mechanism. Yeah, I mean, they're, right. they're both relatively equally bound. Remember, we're not talking about big army or, or you know right. conventional forces. We're talking about the rarefied air of the special mission. But units. think about the interrogation
1: space, right? I mean, to to pivot from covert action for a second. I mean, in the interrogation space, you know, I think there's a lot better examples of pushback within and up the chain in the military than in CIA, at least from what we know publicly.
0: Maybe, maybe so. No, I think that on interrogation, um, certainly the, the role of the JAGs in the early Bush administration su- supports what you're saying. Um, but let's let's step back and think what's really at stake in these debates. I think what it's really all about, these are all about activities outside of zones of active combat operations, right? This is about using lethal force in a more ad hoc, one-off
1: uh Where there's way. a need for... Deniability or covertness or something blah, blah, yeah, and, like that. And, yeah, and
0: both and both entities can clearly act in that capacity and do act in that capacity. The interesting question, and the reason you would even want there to be some sort of uh, legislative invi- involvement is making sure that if the United States is going to go use force in some new location abroad in particular, or in some circumstance where there's very possibly going to be some significant repercussions, um, there's going to be a sense of accountability that will at first and foremost induce through its shadow looming over the decision-making process, induce more careful decision-making. I, I frankly think that they're probably very similarly situated. My claim, my goal here is not to, um, to show that the oversight system internally and externally at cia is, is so wonderful <laughs> it's to suggest there's no reason to think that jsoc operates in a more constrained way on these issues yeah. i think there's just there's there's nothing in the record that really leads me to that no but there's
1: the, no but there's i mean i guess the, i guess but there's not nearly the sordid history for jsoc that there is for cia right really I mean, in my, I mean, not to the same extent of like, you know, clearly running afoul of the rules that were imposed by, you know, outside entities. I mean, I, on,
0: look, on, the, on the issues we're talking about on, on the drone program, I just think that uh, what, what there is in the record shows that it not sorted activity by others, but just in terms of the quality of the, or the effectiveness of the operations, there's the whole episode in Yemen where for a while, uh, JSOC was in the lead there, and then they decided, the Obama administration decided, let's bring back the CIA because, frankly, they were making fewer mistakes, and they were more effective and accurate. The article that gives that rise to this discussion has this striking passage where it talks about how um, levels of certainty, the calibration of how sure you must be about the target, as a formal matter, we're told, are higher and more demanding for CIA than they are for JSOC. Now, I'm not trying to belittle either organization, I just want to really cause everyone who reflexively assumes that it's automatically uh, riskier for CIA to do it. Um, that I don't think is, is a case that's been proven.
1: No, I'm not saying it's automatically riskier. I'm just saying, based my own, just on my own experience, if you if it were just up to me based on what I know, that I have just a little more faith in the the, the, the oversight and accountability mechanisms for the military than I do for the CIA. And
0: my bottom line is I have roughly equivalent faith in both. I think right. they're both go. pretty good. Now, this leads to something quite different. Um, one of the key policy developments on the use of force that occurred th- during the time of the Obama administration was a decision as a matter of policy to still continue to maintain that it's a global armed conflict with Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and their associated forces and therefore the law of armed conflict applies everywhere these guys might be found but as a matter of policy discretion to distinguish between places that rose to the level of sort of undefined active hostilities and in those places embrace the full potentially embrace the full range of law of armed conflict authority but in other places that don't rise to that level as a matter of policy impose a near zero tolerance standard for collateral damage even though the law of armed conflict might allow for collateral damage don't fire if you if you if you think you're going to have civilian casualties uh, and then also, don't do it at all unless there's an imminent threat uh, to uh, American lives. This, this sort of distinction, this policy distinction was treated, uh, certainly in the public, uh, commentators treated this like it was a big deal. And, and the world got kind of mapped out differently in light of this. And we were told uh, in a Charlie Savage piece from earlier in the week that the Trump administration has actually... Uh, moved a few locations, uh, three parts of Yemen and a, I think a to be determined or at least not yet publicly stated part of Somalia, under the heading of zones of active hostilities. And of course, the, the framing that the most uh, readers then delivered to that was, oh, so Trump is Trump is expanding the war on terrorism. My own thought is that this is uh, this is clearly a change, and it may well, and it seems by definition designed to increase the risk. Uh, to to embrace the risk of collateral damage within the bounds of the law of armed conflict still but embracing some risk there i'm not sure how practically different it is and i say that in part uh, as a matter of policy comparison to the obama administration because let's not forget that although it didn't get nearly the attention the obama administration would occasionally toggle some particular area and i'm thinking here of cert in libya uh, they toggle it on as, as a zone of act hostilities for such time as they wanted the military to be able to uh, fire within the, the broader range of circumstances the law of armed conflict would allow. And I think it's very telling that Obama, I believe it was just before the transition of power, Obama then turned off that designation for for uh, Libya so that it wouldn't be there when Trump came aboard. And, and it just kind of goes to show you that, look, this presidents of both parties here want to be able in some circumstances to allow the full range of law of armed conflict authority to be used. I don't think it's quite fair to pin this entirely on Trump as if it's some sort of, you know, a warmongering move on his part.
1: Um, I guess that's right. I mean, Bobby, to me, like all of these little moves that we've talked about on this podcast, right, the question is going to be how this operationalizes. um, And are these little moves going to aggregate into a significant expansion in where we're using kinetic force, um, or are they actually mostly symbolic, um, yeah. right? And I think that's, we don't know yet. I mean, I think, right. and, and that's that, That's why these pieces to me all fit together, because part of this is gonna depend upon how we conduct these operations, um, how aggressive we are, um, what we think about civilian casualties, what kind of accountability that there is for when things go wrong, we'll and, have to see.
0: You know, and thinking about Yemen, and obviously there, there seems to be an uptick in the use of force made possible in part by this, uh, may possible in part also by the related determination that not every decision to use force there is going to have to come up to the yep. interagency process. That's yep. a big deal. Yeah. That that speeds up and gives discretion to commanders in the field.
1: But it also risks blowback, right? If in fact the commanders in the field are becoming too aggressive and we're not actually having the kinds of political considerations that were driving those decisions over the past eight years. But you know,
0: it's funny because it, it calls to mind sort of the, the cliche or the, the, the critique of LBJ and the Vietnam War, yeah. keeping all these decisions at the White House. And the lesson of history on that was supposed to be, look, this is micromanagement. If you're going to have a war, let the generals fight the war. And what's, this, this gets at this constant theme of the post-911 period that there are these circumstances where we're using war-related authorities and asserting war-related authorities, but for whatever reason, we're not embracing the idea deep down at a visceral level that it's really a war. And therefore, it seems like... Of the, which
1: the CIA thing might be a piece, right? Yeah, Let indeed. the generals do it or the CIA, or the CIA officers. CIA.
0: Right. Well, no, to go back to the Vietnam example, right. there's, there's a long history of the CIA right. involvement, right. including in war fighting. And, and so the, may, the roots in the OSS, that's what the CIA kind of begins
1: with. But for. so maybe this line blurring is the larger long-term story about whether you know there's some drift of authority here that's going to be hard for the relevant decision makers to pull back.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that the more warlike it looks... I wonder if that will engender more public interest and public uh, attention, and therefore maybe some more congressional involvement. It's easy for Congress. It's easier for Congress to sit on the sidelines as they mostly have in all these circumstances uh, when the public doesn't view it as a war. But
1: uh, here, how's this for a segue? We've talked before about what might finally get Congress back into the ISIL, AUMF, yes. authorization of military force conversation. Bobby proxy detention was in the news this week thanks to a very interesting. And I thought oddly buried item in the Washington Post. Yeah, tell us tell us about it. So this is um, the I think I, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. I think it's Rachel Weiner um, mm-hmm. in the Washington Post. Yeah, on what section
0: of the post, by the way? The local section. The local of the section,
1: because he was a guy from Virginia, so it's a local interest story. So on Monday, there's um, a sale at Penny's, and also a local man's. <laughs> right, and so here's a shout out to Phil Carter, right, who brought this to both yeah, our attention job, on Twitter. Um, yay, Phil! Um, right, so um, I'm gonna butcher this name too, but Mohammed Huys. Um, or um, Mm Khois, is a uh, Virginia man who's accused of briefly joining ISIS um, and who claims he was held um, in an Iraqi detention center, was captured in Iraq, was held by Iraqi authorities in Iraq for three months, and claims he was interrogated, um, whether lawfully or not, not so clear, by the FBI while he was in Iraqi, I put that in quotes, detention. It's really
0: Kurdish regional
1: authorities. Right. Right. Um, So, so Bobby, this raises something you've talked a lot about before and I've talked a little about, which is the the question of proxy detention, if we're picking up terrorism suspects overseas and handing them off to other countries who are really doing nothing other than what we tell them to do. What role for U.S. law?
0: Right. So I think the first and foremost thing that has to be said here is that the category of proxy detention is really a spectrum. It's not you either are or are not in proxy detention. There's a broad spectrum that runs from circumstances when you are held in a facility that seems to be owned and controlled by foreign authorities in a foreign land, um, but the U.S. government has some access to you. Uh, It is certainly not a novelty that you can be in a a foreign detention facility or prison and FBI agents show up to talk to you. There's there's endless
1: examples over time. And And there's a whole doctrine, Bobby, right? There's this thing called the Joint Venture Doctrine. Right. So explain real quick what that is. So the Joint Venture Doctrine is something the courts have basically invented to deal with this problem, which is at what point does a nominally foreign interrogation actually trigger US constitutional protections? Of course, we usually talk about citizens, because they're the ones who would have such rights overseas. Um, at what level of U.S. involvement, right, right does an ostensibly foreign interrogation become a domestic one subject to the confines of the Constitution? Right.
0: And do you think there's anything to say about the resulting doctrine of the joint venture, other than into totality of the circumstances, and at some point it's a little bit hard to define. It tips into something you can fairly say is. The US has de facto control, therefore, this is as if we just happen to be holding the citizens I, I think
1: that's what the doctrine says. Um, I have concerns that it's applied in a way that's a little too, to use your word, deferential. Mm-hmm. Um, so my favorite exemplar case is actually a pretty important case from about 10, 12 years ago, the Abu Ali case. Yes. Um, uh, I, Omar Abu Ali, I think his first name was Omar? Yeah, Abu, uh, yeah, yeah I think so. um, Right. Was an American citizen, is an American citizen. Um, he was arrested by the Saudi intelligence officials. Yep. He was in Saudi Arabia. He was interrogated by the Saudis. Um, everyone agrees, Bobby, that the FBI was there in the room. Mm-hmm. Everyone agrees that the Saudi intelligence officers asked questions put to them by the FBI. Mm-hmm. Um, Abu Ali, when he's in Saudi Arabia, actually files a habeas petition in D.C. District Court through his father who turns out to be I think an employee at the Saudi Embassy, okay. um, right? Uh, Judge John Bates, yep. um, issues what I thought was a very important and deeply correct ruling that based on the allegations in the Habeas Petition that in fact the U.S. was, to use your word, in control, de facto control of his custody. Were
0: there allegations beyond simply that the FBI showed up and passed questions that were then being Well used? and
1: that the Saudis were torturing him at the FBI's Urging. Um, that was, right. that was which the I find allegation. It hard to believe that the FBI was so do the I. Saudis to torture. Him. I don't find it hard to believe that he was tortured. I, I didn't say that. I do <laughs> hard I, to believe that agreed. the FBI
0: was encouraging But, but so
1: Judge Bates did what I think was absolutely the right thing, which he said, you know, the allegations in the complaint, if true, would rise to the level of the kind of U.S. involvement that would trigger habeas. Therefore, I'm going to deny the government's motion to dismiss, and we're going to have limited jurisdictional discovery, mm-hmm. where I'm going to try to figure out, like, hey, what is your role? And And then what happens? And then what happens? Remarkably, um, rather than proceeding to jurisdictional discovery, um, shortly thereafter, Abu Ali miraculously turns up in a Virginia federal court where he's indicted on very serious terrorism charges and also, I think, a plot to assassinate President Bush. Yeah, so what would be
0: really interesting is, what if the Saudis really did want to hold him? You know, if it's a situation where where the country that has the de jure control um, really doesn't turn it over. I think in that case, the, the State Department representative shows up, the legal advisor's office files an affidavit or has somebody testify saying, look, we asked them, we, you, you're suggesting that we have de facto control. We tried to, to bring the guy in. We can't. They told us not.
1: And, and, and that's fine. But I guess what, what yeah. bothers me about the Abu Ali case, Bobby, is you and I look at that fact pattern, right? I, I think I can say this. Um, it certainly seems from that fact pattern like the U.S. was exercising a whole lot of control over Abu Ali's situation.
0: I think that's consistent with the fact pattern but I don't think it follows from it automatically because it's also possible that we were in a position where we had the diplomatic weight with the Saudis to ask them to return our right. citizen. I'm sure we always had that, but that doesn't mean that he had been arrested on our dime, that it, that it was all a no, 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 but activity. it wasn't about the arrest,
1: right? But so, so, no, no, no,
0: but I'm, I'm saying like that guy could have ended up in exactly that situation.
1: Yeah, without us doing anything. Without us doing anything. So so this eventually goes to the Fourth Circuit, right? Abu Ali is convicted. Um, he appeals to the Fourth Circuit. Um, this is actually one of only, in, in a very interesting, very thorough joint opinion, um, one of the two questions on which the Fourth Circuit divided was whether Abu Ali's interrogation in Saudi Arabia was a joint venture, um, and the majority said no. Judge Motz in a sort of dissenting footnote, said yes, but that it was harmless error. Um, that there was enough evidence, even if you excluded the fruits of the Saudi interrogation. Yeah. Um, I say I, the Abu Ali case, Bobby, to me is not unique. It's just the most prominent one, mm-hmm. right? But uh, to me, the joint venture doctrine makes sense. The question is, how do we make sure um, that courts actually push past the facts you know, as presented by both sides to figure out what actual amount of control the U.S. was exercising? Yeah, and, and
0: I'm not sure that, you know, as, as legal academics, we want there to be a clean answer that say, oh, well, if you formulate right. the doctrine this way, there's your answer. I think this is one that's always going to be really murky and hard and difficult, but I also think it's one that really matters. I mean, the reason I wanted to highlight the story was I think that proxy detention. And by that, again, I mean, everything that runs from situations where we have only limited involvement, we're not really in control to true proxy detention. I think that once you take U S administered long-term detention and counterterrorism off the table, yet you're still engaged in a global conflict or you're, you're asserting that you are, um, you are necessarily embracing a lot more of that. And over time, there have been lots of stories here and there, especially out of Somalia. Uh, Sean Naylor has reported some of this, uh, talking about how there are these facilities, and it seems like we have a fair amount of involvement. It, it raises the question of proxy detention. And, and let me be clear, it's not inherently wrong. In fact, I think that some amount of this is, is inevitable. When, you're, when your overarching strategy is to act by, with, and through especially with the involvement of both CIA and Joint Special Operations Command, there's got to be a lot of third country detention going on. As you keep your hands white glove clean, we don't do detention. So
1: listen, I mean, I, I don't want to disagree with you for a second that proxy detention by itself is not unlawful. But I do think proxy detention creates all kinds of possibilities for those whose motives are less than ideal oh, yeah. or those who have a less... Um, protective view of relevant yeah. domestic international legal constraints to use the existence of the proxy to defeat yeah. legal constraints that would otherwise limit the detention and the interrogation. Yeah.
0: It's it's sort of, uh, it's, it's both, right? Yeah. So on one hand, it clearly creates more space for abuse of, of the people who end up in detention. At the same time, it also means that you're going to have people who actually speak the language, understand the culture. Right. It's not um, some you know, military police unit from, you right. know. But if I could be a fed court's
1: nerd for a second. I also Please. think we, we see the difference between the ability of a habeas court to handle this problem, right? Judge Bates was quite effective mm-hmm. um, in the Abu Ali case, I think. Right, um, And a criminal court considering how this pretrial detention should factor right. in. The problem is, is, that not everyone is going to be Abu Ali, whose father works in the Saudi embassy. No, right.
0: Most, almost none. So I think I described it in my original Lawfare post as a tip of the iceberg thing. Um, there's loads of stuff out there. Who knows? It's an indeterminate amount, and it's all on the spectrum. There's a lot out there. It's a really rare circumstance. Now, now that actually leads, and we'll move into lightning round mode here. That leads pretty. Uh, <laughs> I love to, the lightning round. <laughs> to the case of uh, Spin Gul, uh, uh, the Harun case. The guy goes by the name Spin Ghoul. Uh, he was just convicted, Steve, by a jury. Um, a what? A, a civilian federal criminal prosecution. Once again, DOJ gets Whoa. their man. In Brooklyn. And, and this is the Eastern District of New York. These, For those who don't follow closely the results in DOJ civilian criminal prosecutions, um, they win these cases. They win them again and again and again. This is another one. This is a guy. But also, Bobby,
1: I mean, they win quickly.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now, this case, it wasn't as quick, you know, I haven't pulled the docket to see what's been going on for the three years since he was extradited, but they did get the conviction. This guy's going to get a life sentence. There's almost no doubt of that. He's been in U.S. custody since March 2013. Actually, I guess it's been four years. But in any event, let's give a quick rundown of who he was and what he did. We think, is it was he from Nigeria or Niger? No, Nigeria, I think.
1: Uh, I think that's right. Um, he's an Al Qaeda operative who targeted U.S. personnel and diplomatic facilities across two continents. Um, as the DOJ press release says, the evidence presented at trial established that he and other jihadists attack a U- attacked a U.S. military patrol in Afghanistan, resulting in the deaths of two American soldiers. And the serious injury of others. Bobby, I think that's why we think a life sentence is, is likely oh, here. Oh, right. no, yeah. It seems like they have having dead to rights on having crossed
0: over into Afghanistan with the group and, right. and actually participated directly in combat. Now, what's I interesting. I mean, this is, is, this is not
1: just a material support case.
0: No, no. This is a direct involvement. I, I used to have these categories where I distinguished the material support cases that were for actual supporters, sort right. of indirect prevention cases. And then it's material support cases where you've got an actually dangerous individual. This guy was involved in combat in Afghanistan in which some Americans died. Now, as an, un, as an unprivileged participant, in combat, who then later on goes uh, to Africa and in Niger gets involved in various, uh, or Nigeria, I forget which it Niger. was. Niger. Well, so uh, so he's, he's a citizen of Niger.
1: He actually gets into trouble in Nigeria. In Nigeria.
0: Gets involved in some some plotting there that may have targeted the U.S. Embassy. Ultimately gets to Libya, gets arrested in Libya around 2006. In the uh, the mess that was Libya during the fall of Gaddafi, he gets out in 2011. Somehow or other ends up in Italian custody. Not long Vietnam. thereafter. Yeah, it's not clear how that happens, but he ends up, the
1: Italians get him. I mean, my my geographic sense is Bobby, right? My spider geography suggests to me that he was trying to go north. He may well have, because I don't think
0: it was likely that Italian...
1: forces went were, to Libya. <laughs> well, I think,
0: actually, probably there were some No, no, but we're, but,
1: we're, but we're going around arresting terrorism suspects. Well, you,
0: actually, you know, you, you kind
1: of wonder if there isn't a deeper story yeah. here, some
0: kind of hybrid operation. But in any event, Next time.
1: he ends up in Italian government authority. Now, the
0: Italians, like all the European states, um, occasionally get their hands on someone, we want to extradite for counterterrorism purposes, and there's always a diplomatic assurance given by the United States in those cases that we will not put them in a military commission proceeding or send them to Guantanamo otherwise. Uh, if they do get transferred us, that is always the condition um, that EU countries stipulate. This ha- happens all the time. So he didn't go into a military commission, Steve, even though his fact pattern has many equities that would have militated in favor of using a commission had he been captured, say, in Afghanistan at the time by U.S. forces,
1: or even, or had it been, or had the exact same facts uh, um, uh, taken place four or five years earlier. Right? I mean, by 2011, we were not sending anyone to Guantanamo. Well, okay, so there's that too, yes.
0: But I guess my point is, it was foreordained that once right. once a European country had him, there's no resort yep. to Milcoms. Yep. What's interesting is, that forced us to put him into the civilian criminal justice system. Even though, and, he,
1: lo- even though he wanted to be prosecuted in military. Culture. Oh,
0: that's right. Let's be clear here. The guy, uh, there's all these incredible quotes uh, from him at... If you look, for example, at the, the government's motion to have an uh, um, anonymous and partially sequestered jury goes into great detail about what a maniac this guy was in court, um, cussing out the judge and going on and on about how he's a warrior and he wants he wants to be in a military proceeding as a warrior. Um, this sort of thing where a lot of these guys they want that glorification of feeling like they're being treated as combatants. He didn't get that. He stayed in the civilian criminal justice system and the jury did what it needed to
1: do. Now, Bobby, what if he had been put in the military commission system? Do you have a sense of where his case would be? Well, it's hard to imagine it would have leapt
0: in front of all the others and somehow raced to a conviction already, right? Do you right. think that it would have?
1: No, no, no. I think we'd yeah. still be in pre-trial hearings. I mean, this week right. in the Nashiri case, the judge said, all right, I'm optimistic that the trial's going to be next year. Um, just right. for the record, right. I'm taking the over.
0: Yeah, so yeah, that's I, I might take that. I might I might take that straight up. But the point is, it's a good head-to-head illustration, a- almost a head-to-head illustration, showing you that one thing you get with the civilian criminal justice system is a, that it's definitely effective, and b, it's moving fast. And this this sort of allergy people have in some quarters, and and I say this as someone who thinks the military commissions are a very defensible system of terrific leadership under Mark Martins, and can and should play a role. Ideally, but they're so gummed up, they just can't seem to turn forward. It's taking so long, and, and even you can't like And even
1: when you get conditions in the military commissions, you get all these interesting questions on appeal, whereas in Haroon's case, I can't yeah. imagine the Second Circuit's going to spend that Although
0: long. Although, I, I think they would have charged him sh- strictly with, you know, um, Straight up murders without privilege. But he, listen, I mean, thing.
1: even if you have a case that doesn't have the jurisdictional baggage of, say, you know, Nishiri or Al with the with the non international war crimes, yeah. you still have all the other baggage about the procedural rules, the evidentiary rules, right. the constitutional. You have to litigate everything, as opposed to finality, efficiency, expediency, and Bobby legitimacy.
0: Yeah. Well, and and the good thing is, this guy got the 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 conviction, and the DOJ once again got the result that uh, they keep getting in these cases.
1: So just, I mean, yet another arrow in the quiver of why the civilian courts are both able and willing and perfectly competent to handle even the high-profile cases. Um, So we promised our listeners we'd spend a bit talking about Neil Gorsuch. Yeah. Um, Obviously, this is President Trump's nominee to fill Justice Scalise on the Supreme Court. His confirmation hearing begins next Monday. Um, There's an interesting story by Charlie Savage in Wednesday's New York Times titled Neil Gorsuch Helped Defend Disputed Bush-Era Terror Policies. Bobby, um, he was in DOJ as the Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General, basically the right hand to the number three guy at DOJ, um, for an interesting 14-month period in 2005-2006. Is there anything here that people should be that interested in? Uh, No. I
0: I don't think so. I mean, I think it's it's certainly reportable and and interesting to read. But this doesn't expose or reveal uh, Neil Gorsuch as having done anything other, in my opinion, than be exactly what he'd been hired to be, which is one of the uh, senior DOJ attorneys responsible for sort of, as you put it uh, in our conversation earlier, sort of traffic cop managing all these high stakes litigation activities and keeping the trains running on time. And he, yes, he's very enthusiastic in his emails to his colleagues saying, Good job for this, way to go for that. Hey, here's a tip for this. Uh, he, he was just doing his job. He's doing the job that anybody who was in the Justice Department in those roles in those years, he, to, to put a finer point on it, He's not authoring memoranda no uh, no no no, the, no. The... Offer, you know, strained interpretations of interrogation. (laughs) Or at least that we know of. No, Um, I don't think he would.
1: So so I agree with that. I also think, I mean, I know Judge Gorsuch a little bit. It doesn't strike me as being at all out of character with his personality to be the kind of colleague who goes out of his way to say, hey, that was a great brief, or hey, that was a wonderful win in the district court. I actually
0: think it speaks well of him that he's probably a pleasant person to work for.
1: I'm going to put in one slight, slight, slight uh, caveat, which is he did send one email that's getting a lot of note um, about how he was extraordinarily impressed with his tour of Guantanamo. This was in November 2005 Bobby, so still in the sort of yeah, you know.
0: But the context is he was writing a literally it was a thank you note to the I commander know. of the base. It was a, it was a courtesy note. And he said, "Oh, this is great. I was so impressed with the professionalism. This is all very well done." I would imagine that what he'd just come back from was a tour in which he was shown a highly professional uh, operation this is this Listen, is just a courtesy.
1: I, I, I just want to say I don't think any of this is remotely disqualifying. I think oh, sure. and, and I do think it's going to be confirmed. I do think that for those who are worried that Justice Gorsuch would not be an especially likely vote against the government in a national security case, um, they can point to many of these documents as evidence of his, you know, fealty for legal understandings and legal approaches that he's likely to see as a justice.
0: I think that would be way overreading. I think <laughs> what you have here is a thin read that reveals no more than he's an extremely courteous, uh, positive leader in an office who's sending very positive but, messages. But, but we agree, not going to have, have
1: a real impact on, on this. Definitely yeah, on the not. Yeah. Process. yeah, nothing to see here. Move along. So let's move along. What else is going on? There's an NCAA tournament of some kind. And Arizona is going to win it. So first of all, UConn is going to win the women's tournament. I'm just well, going out on uh, a limb.
0: Yeah, is that is that in dispute? <laughs> um,
1: I actually think Vegas has it as UConn having a higher chance than the field.
0: I'm very tempted to say the, the Longhorns are going to pull an upset. But I do think they'll go very far, but it is hard to bet against the UConn
1: um, Huskies. But So Bobby, you have Arizona going all the way?
0: Yeah, I have them in, in Louisville at the end. Arizona in
1: L- Louisville. Now in that Louisville. strikes me as, as, that may be a very sort of thin read to be yeah,
0: I know all about thin reads because my bracket's full of them. I have SMU going pretty far. Yeah, I mean, I
1: think we both actually have SMU in the Sweet 16. As a
0: TCU guy, that is not easy for me to do.
1: I understand. Um, so I'll just give this away. I actually have, for me, what's a very chalky bracket. I've mm. got three one seeds in the final four. I've got Villanova, Kansas, and Gonzaga. Mm. But I have to say, if it's Gonzaga and Arizona in the lead, in the Elite Eight, that is a game I will block out my schedule to watch. Um, the only number, the only non-number one seed, Bobby, I have in the Final Four is my eventual national champion, the UCLA Bruins. Is it, so one thing's for sure, our podcast is committed to the Pac-12 for this, which is something I never would have thought at the beginning of the year.
0: Yeah, but you know it is. There's a lot of there's a lot of parody this year.
1: There's a lot of parody, and I actually have to. I'm just gonna say this. You know, at at the risk of trying to be analytical, right? UCLA has three different guys who, when the game is on the line, I have faith to actually do something important, right? They've got Lonzo Ball, they've got T.J. Leaf, they've got Bryce Alford. Son, you know, son of a coach.
0: You know that that's actually one reason to to give Kansas a nod too. And of course, you never want to bet against the Jayhawks. That said, the Big Twelve. in many ways, maybe it's just the view from Austin. Seems seemed like such a lame year for the Big 12. I uh, don't really want to ride any of those horses all the way to the Although end. Although I
1: do have Iowa State in the Sweet 16. Do Go Cyclones. Um, and I have Michigan in the Sweet 16. And my one really, really big, 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 big upset pick... Michigan State? Wichita State beating Kentucky in the second round and going to the Sweet 16. Revenge for a couple of years ago when Wichita State was the one and Kentucky was the eight. I find that shocking. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't said um, I, I, I've got nothing else. I, I can't I can't top that If we stop now we keep it just under an hour uh, Well then let's stop Adios Stay safe out there everybody Talk to you next week